this was Zen, I could <clears throat> say, well, let's just all listen to the thunder. I could get out of giving a Dharma talk. But in Vipassana, we explain everything. Endlessly. <laughs> so I have to go on and on. Almost every retreat, when I look out of the window from where I'm staying, I can see people doing a walking meditation. And as some of you know, I then will report back what I see. And I swore I wouldn't do that this retreat. Sort of, well, you know, they get self-conscious and paranoid, and then they don't like me. But then again, there's so many new yogis here. I think more than half or, or so. And I feel if I don't tell you some of the things I saw, your spiritual growth will be stunted. (laughs) And you'll go in the wrong direction forever. Uh, I also tried uh, an experiment today to see if I could see how things were going by just looking at the feet instead of the whole person. See if I could find out anything about the mind. But sometimes what I saw in the feet was so startling that I had to look up and see who was doing that. Um, So I think we have to give a little bit more detailed instruction. Some of the problem may be, by the way, in case you think I'm being condescending or harsh, uh, for years, Narayan can confirm this, I hated the slow walking. Just can't stand it. It's all right now, tolerable. You know, like, like good medicine. Uh, I like brisk walking. But I certainly know the value of it now, and it took years for me. I hope it doesn't take you that long. Um, some of the problem may be, just based on what I saw of the feet, that it's new for many people, this idea of walking actually being a formal meditation practice. And so you kind of don't know what to do. You know, should you just take a nice natural walk and enjoy yourself and listen to the sound of birds and look at the wonderful colors? Or should you do this very stylized, slow thing that you see these people doing? And so you you kind of try to do it. It's sort of three or four slow steps and then five quick steps and then two or three slow steps and then what time is it and then scratching and then uh, the head on a swivel kind of going this way, that way, checking out the person to the left, to the right, then a few more slow steps. Kind of a look, a contemplative look on the face. <laughs> but look, the feet tell everything. I mean, you're just thinking. One person actually was so involved in thought that they were supporting their jaw. It was like, the, you know, Rodin statue, the thinker? I had never seen that statue walking. But tonight, today I did. It's a lot simpler and it actually has some value, but you're going to have to give up the concern about what your neighbor is wearing and uh, the beauty of nature and so forth. Not forever, it's just a little while. It'll be Sunday soon. Um, see if you can shrink your horizons a little bit. Come down into just the walking and the instructions really mean what they're saying. It's as simple as the breath that we do in the hall. In fact, it's really the same practice. 
only it's done while moving. So uh, I think it would be helpful to set up a track for yourself, as Narayan suggested. Some of you don't seem to have that bounded area, and so that's part of the problem. Uh, and when you start, slow down a little bit. If you have to, if it's really... I know perhaps some of anyone, any people here from New York? <laughs> well, that explains it. Yeah. I know. It's hard to get so slow after New York. I mean, that was my problem too. Same, I sympathize. Start walking perhaps a little bit more rapidly for a few minutes and then gradually slow it down and then finish up very, very slowly uh, and literally bring your awareness into the movement, into the feet. And all the things that are going to compete for your attention, like some of the things that I mentioned, that's what the practice is. It's the same as when we're in the hall and you're sitting and there it's easier to grasp it. You've seen statues of the Buddha all over the place in books and museums and so forth. But the walking perhaps is a little new for some people. But here, when you're following the breath, doesn't your mind run all over the place inwardly? So when we go outside, it's just magnified a bit. But it's the same principle. Very gently come back to the breathing and the walking. And if it gets really rough, like you're very bored or very agitated or very preoccupied, then stop. Just come to a halt and just honor where you are with your, with your mental state. Just experience how incredibly bored you are with this or what is the purpose of all this. It's all right. Just hear it out. Be with the breath. And then when you feel a bit more composed, then resume the walking. If you're... Maybe I've said enough and we can just... Call, call it an evening. What I'd like to do tonight, or attempt to do, is uh, review some things that have been said um, and provide you with a very condensed, compact view of uh, a practice which, if we had more time, we would be doing. Uh, I'm doing it with the following notion in mind. About half of you are totally new to IMS. Many of you are new to meditation of any kind. Some are new to Vipassana meditation. And then there are others of you who have been meditating for 10, 15, and even 20 years. So uh, what I'd like to do is to try to give you a sense, a context, uh, and talk about some aspects of the practice which those of you who are beginning uh, probably won't be doing. But it would be planting some seeds and it will also give you a a frame of reference so you understand why you do these particular practices. And then uh, perhaps that will give more meaning to some of the simple things that we do and you see the, uh, the sense of it all, at least uh, in, your, in your mind's eye. The practice that we're doing comes from a sermon given by the Buddha uh, on meditation called Anapanasati, sometimes translated the full awareness of breathing or mindfulness with breathing. Essentially, 
what this teaching is about is using breathing to trace the breath back, the breath and everything that comes up along with the breath, back to an immaculate origin. Sounds kind of Catholic, doesn't it? I don't even know if it's Buddhist, but uh, the breath is used in such a thoroughgoing way over a period of time, of course. The breath starts to become so vivid because you spend so much time being attuned to breathing in and breathing out, not just in sitting, but as much as possible throughout the day and not just on the retreat, as we'll uh, suggest tomorrow when it's time to go home. Uh, one beauty of the breath practice, breath awareness practice, is that it's portable. It's always with you. Very modern in that sense. Um, so the breath is used uh, not only to to develop calmness, a certain stability of the mind, but it's also used to develop wisdom. Now, in the sutra itself, the sermon that the Buddha gave, there are 16 contemplations of the breath. These 16 are not, are not random. They unfold in, a, in an order. They're related to one another, and they have to do, in a general sense, with the way in which practice unfolds. Another way to look at it is that it's a way of, in a, uh, of providing a very clear exposition of the way in which conscious breathing can not only bring us a kind of peace and calming, but also take us into vipassana proper, insight, work. The 16 steps are really four sets of four. I say... It's going to be condensed because now I'm going to reduce even the four, the 16 to four sets of four, which will become just four. Uh, But when I say condensed, I don't mean that it's uh, only to communicate to you because we don't have much time, because actually it's a way of practice. And there are uh, teachers who teach this way in Thailand, and uh, I myself practice this way, although I've worked with all 16 Um, the four have to do with the first one has to do with becoming more and more aware of the body more sensitive to the body more mindful of the body the breathing being part of the body Um, the second has to do with feelings feelings in this sense has to do with this tendency to find things pleasant or unpleasant or neutral throughout the day. It's happening all the time. If you, ju- if you allow yourself to hear the sounds of the birds, perhaps you immediately there's a pleasant feeling. Or what I'm saying right now might be pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. And then there's the mind proper. In the mind, these are all the mental states, the different moods, the different visitations that we've had all day long. And then finally, the the lawfulness that underlies all of it. This is the the Dharma. Um, 
In working with the breath exclusively, let's back up a little bit. This is what we've been doing since last evening. The mind is a very rich place, very creative, endlessly secreting thoughts and then thinking about the thoughts that it just made up. And then jumping in the middle of the whole thing and sometimes treating it as if it's absolutely real. And what we're asking you to do is to trade in all of those possibilities. Creative ideas, plans, worries, uh, aspirations, everything, whatever turns up, to exchange all of that for the simple in-breath and the out-breath. And as you probably know by now, it's not so easy. It's easier said than done. We tend to get all caught up in um, very deeply conditioned ancient patterns, many of which, if we look carefully at them, are not even beneficial to us, and yet we do them over and over and over. The same worry over and over and over again. Rehearsing what you're going to say on Monday for the thousandth time. And uh, patterns of response that uh, don't produce happiness, that don't lead to peace, and yet seem so entrenched that have this power to repeat themselves over and over and over. And in opposition to that, we're offering this very simple breath, rather unpretentious, unassuming. And at times, as people report, and uh, perhaps on this retreat, but certainly on longer ones, even disregarded or taken as boring, that is the breath. Somehow, even though it causes so much suffering, we prefer to get it meshed in all the productions of the mind. And we're learning something, we're learning something new. We have a new option. Whereas before, we didn't realize that there, it's like a new channel has just been created. Channel breath. And you have the option of switching to channel breath instead of you know, cars turning over and catching fire and, you know, all the other things that are Bosnia and Herzegovina, you know, everything that's going on. You can say, this is all very interesting, but I'm going to switch the channel breath. We now have that, that possibility. And if we remember, we can take it. Now, to begin with, perhaps you're taking it, switching to that channel mainly on faith or because, you know, you're here and you keep hearing us tell you that it's good and you should do it. And so why not? But probably some of you aren't even doing it, or not that much. You don't have to tell me. It doesn't seem too valuable. Wouldn't it be more interesting to go into the suffering that you have or fig figure out this problem or improve your way of saying things when you have to say them, whatever? Our job, really, the whole uh, retreat center is a kind of context. In a way, it's a, it's a, a brilliant... Uh, theater. It's drama, high drama. We've, it's a creation that crea helps uh, put together a reality. All the stage sets, including us extras here, 
It's all designed to do one thing, to get you to come back to yourself as, as it is for you right now. It's been done for a long time. It's an invention, these forms. And at a certain point, if you do it, uh, on your own, you begin to see how precious just coming to rest in the breathing can be. And at a certain point, you it's not even renunciation. It's not that you're getting rid of all those wonderful channels to go to bo- good, boring educational channel one. <laughs> Just, you know, National Geographic and uh, documentaries. <laughs> Is that you go to it out of intelligence because you understand that uh, you now don't have to suffer helplessly sometimes. You can either as you get good in switching into the channel, you can let go of some of the things that are very, very painful, temporarily, or at least weaken them. Weaken them by every moment that you're with a breath, let's say in every breath moment. When you're <clears throat> mindful of an in-breath or an out-breath, you're cultivating that quality. In some schemes of Buddhist psychology, Uh, there are two levels. It's a little bit like a living room and a basement. And the living room is the mind level. It's what we're quite aware of right now. And the basement, somewhat similar to the unconscious, sometimes called a store consciousness, storehouse consciousness, are all endless numbers of uh, cassettes or seeds our entire past experience, all the possibilities, whether you think of it as from past lives or from genetics, or you don't care about either of them, there's no question that anyone can verify there just seems to be an endless number of creative possibilities that are living just below the living room. And as you get quiet, and as perhaps you know, they keep coming up and visiting us sometimes, sometimes uninvited. unpleasant. When we switch to the breath, we're strengthening uh, seeds of mindfulness. Very, very important because that's the crown jewel. Everything flows out of that. As we begin to taste some joy and some peace, the possibilities for future joy and peace, the possibilities for in the future remembering to be mindful are increased. Not only that, as we uh, switch from channel car turning over and catching fire to channel one, those are weakened a little because we're not watering those seeds. We're saying, thank you very much. I'm not going to get uh, pushed around by self-pity. I know you're there. It's not, we're not advocating repression or denial. Okay, I see you there, self-pity, but I think I'm going to hand myself over, come to rest in the breathing. And you just do it. As you get better at that, uh, it's quite remarkable what is possible. Uh, You're able to, even in the midst of very, very deep suffering, turn to the breath and at least to some degree provide some healing, some strength, some nourishment, which then enables you to return to those other channels only now able to uh, not be pushed around by them, but to investigate them. Uh, I'll, I'll go into that in a moment. So 
even without, with just the straight concentration practice, there's already a lot happening. When the mind can drop into a state of peace and allow itself to soak up that peace, it's strengthened. The mind is nourished, it's strengthened, it's equipped so that it is more fit to look into itself. And we've been doing a lot of that. Those of you who are new, what I would suggest is you mainly do that. If something uh, keeps pulling you away from the breath repeatedly and becomes really problematic, then I would turn to it. Get a bit of experience in looking at, uh, let's say, unpleasant aspects of mind and body, like physical discomfort, like the mental reaction to the physical discomfort, hating it. And then, by and large, return to the, to the breath. Those of you who are really new, um, you'll see why in a moment. In the first four contemplations, which have to do with observing the qualities of the breath uh, and uh, also the uh, increasing familiarity and intimacy with breathing, if you pay attention to the realm of the breath, of course you're going to get to know it a lot better. Like anything else, you get to know it in subtlety and detail in a way that you couldn't possibly without any practice. If asked in an interview to describe the quality of your breathing uh, without practice, you might just give an answer that it doesn't have much detail or subtlety in it. And after some practice, it's remarkable how rich the universe of the breath is and how variable. And as we get more and more attuned to the breathing, uh, we actually enjoy it. We actually enjoy surrendering to the rhythm of the breathing. Um, and we want to do it more. Sitting becomes less of a chore. We actually enjoy sitting down and just being simple. One of the things we're learning, as was mentioned earlier, is we're learning the art of being more simple. Amidst all the complexity that we face, inwardly and outwardly now, this practice is real training in simplicity. In-breath, out-breath, that's it. How much more simple can you get? Trading in all the rest of it, at least temporarily. It's also training in patience, as was mentioned, in that at first, before you've had any real fruit, uh, at times, you don't want to keep coming back to the breath over and over and over and over and over again. Do you know how many times I've come back to the breath? For those of you who are new, probably millions. Staggering, isn't it? Maybe billions for all I know. Trillions, I don't know. A lot of times. And you know what? It's not boring. Thich Nhat Hanh has said he's been watching the breath. He's been doing this practice for over 50 years. And it still has new charm and new subtlety to it all the time. I haven't been at it quite that long, but I can certainly agree. It becomes a gateway to everything else, the breathing. It's not simply a little method to calm down. 
It's not just a band-aid. Okay, and so as you come to know the breath uh, with increasing intimacy, become familiar with it, the body starts to calm down because the breath starts to calm down. You begin to see how powerful breathing is in terms of its ability to condition the body. As you're able to attend to the breathing without trying to calm yourself down, without trying to alter the breath, it will alter anyway. It will become more refined, softer. You will feel more peaceful, of course, in the mind as well. And the body is very influenced by the breathing. And the body will start to become more calm. It will become much more comfortable to sit. At a certain point, uh, thinking starts to weaken. You're able to lay aside uh, so many of the concerns that right now are uh, very powerful, overpower us and take us away from the breath. Pull us right off the breath. We are able more and more gradually to lay that aside. To just let it go and the mind becomes quiet. Now here is the condensed method. I'm not going to go through all 16, but I'm going to show you, those of you who have had practice, going to suggest a way as to how you can work based on your evaluation of how your practice is going. And I'll give you a few, some simple standards. Those of you who are very new may not feel up to doing what I'm suggesting, but at least it gives you a context that is uh, where this all leads to. Again, it's just a hint. There's a limit to how much can be accomplished in such a little bit of time. Once the mind starts becoming very calm and steady, there's a certain happiness that we experience. And the mind is now fit and uh, it can look at feelings. Now, as the mind starts to become much more calm from the continuity of attention to the breath, the body beginning to uh, relax, some of the feelings that come up are, are uh, blissful and joyful. Some of the feelings that come up are extraordinary peace and happiness. And the full range of feelings, very pleasant, very unpleasant, and a lot of stuff neutral. Once the mind is to some degree stabilized, then you can begin to see that no matter what feeling it is, when it arises, you can begin to see it, it will pass away. There's no question about it. But you have to see it for yourself. So you've used the breath, the whole uh, section on the body, to calm down, to develop a kind of foundation. And now, as feelings emerge, you can begin to experience them and begin particularly to see into them and to see that they don't last. They're inconstant. No matter how powerful, let's say, grieving or fear or let's say the unpleasant feelings, I don't like this or I do like this. For example, uh, extraordinary states of peace come up and they're wonderful. They're very inspiring. They contribute to our having more energy to practice and they don't last. As we begin to see that, we also begin to let go of the attachment 
to the peace that comes from a concentrated mind, because if we don't, we'll suffer. Typically, we do. We do suffer. Out of the breath, breath awareness, comes peace. The peace is so delectable that it's only natural that we want to grasp onto it and keep it forever. And it doesn't last forever, and so we suffer. And then we scramble, and we try to get it back, and we suffer some more. And it's nice if you have a friend who's done this already and points out to you, uh, it's fine. Concentrate the mind, enter into some spaciousness and peace, enjoy it while it's there. But don't grasp onto it, because if you do, you'll suffer the way you do when you grasp onto anything else, whether it's money or fame or youth or beauty or intelligence or education or you tell me, health. So now we've actually covered eight of the contemplations, the first four having to do with somewhat different ways of contemplating the breath and the body, the second four having to do with somewhat different ways of looking at feelings, the third, the mind itself. Here, again, within the limits of time, I think we could um, portray something that uh, is central to our practice. As we breathe, uh, the mind throws up many different states. It keeps secreting moods and thoughts and images and plans and worries. You know what it does. It's been doing it all day, all night, and even in our sleep. We can look at it uh, from a Buddhist perspective. Many of the mental events that emerge in consciousness as we're breathing in and breathing out have to do with grasping, whether you call it greed or a tendency in the mind to want something, to grasp after, to clutch at, to hold on to. That tendency of mind, the content will vary. But from time to time, uh, and actually for most humans, perhaps all of us to begin with, that's one of the things we do most. Some of it is not so obvious. You might think greed is just trying to get a million dollars. But it can be much more subtle. Subtle ways in which somehow what we have and who we are is not good enough and there's something else. If I get it, then I'm going to feel all right. Maybe it's just the seat in the dining room. Maybe it's... I've seen people, I've done it myself, reach and take one cup, you know, to get a drink and then not like it. I don't like that. Look at it. It has a silly design on it. And then... <laughs> put it down and then pick up another one that's kind of dignified and nice navy blue color that's what I like <laughs> wanting 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 okay. and as we the retreat is so simple that these things can be uh, more evident even the breath we get greedy for certain kinds of breaths so one tendency is the mind that way. Another tendency is for the mind to just the opposite, push things away, uh, aggress against, be angry towards, and so forth. So we're pulling in. We're also pushing away, assaulting, trying to annihilate, trying to get away from. Those are two uh, 
common tendencies of the mind. And the third would be confusion. Just so we can grasp it in terms of uh, what's familiar to us, the tendency of the mind to not know whether it wants something or it doesn't want it, to be confused, to run in circles, to be ambivalent, to be unable to decide, to be in conflict, and so forth. A kind of a darkness in the mind, not so much focus, uh, not decisive. And those qualities are make up a lot of what happens to the mind and their absence. The mind without greed, what's that like? The mind without aggression, what is that like? And the mind that's clear, that isn't confused, what's that like? So that in this section, we're getting to know these different mind states. What it's like when the mind is craving something, what it's like when that leaves. Maybe it's only four seconds. Finally, just sitting and breathing. You don't want anything in particular. Perhaps you begin to see that this isn't so bad. Or you get something and you notice that it isn't so much the thing that makes you happy as the fact that now you're not wanting anything for a little while anyway. And how nice it feels to not want. Just be content. Just be a person sitting in meditation or sipping tea or whatever it is you're doing. And so you begin to explore that. It's very important as we see these different mind states. We see which produce suffering, which don't. Our intelligence gets activated. We see what it feels like when the mind is clear and radiant. When it's very, very simple, like a clear mirror and just is reflecting what's happening. And then what it's like when we're chasing our own tail, not sure of ourselves, etc. Not so pleasant. Now, again, here, we begin to see that no matter what it is that was just mentioned, it arises and passes away. We've been moving into vipassana, I should have mentioned. When we began to see feelings, once we started to see that they arise and pass away, we're doing vipassana work, insight work. We see that feelings come and go, no matter what they are. We see that all the different mind states come and go. And the fourth set of uh, meditations have to do with that, have to do with what are called dharmas. In this sutra, uh, from the 13th to the 16th, the last four, have to do with seeing the impermanence, that everything is changing. Let's leave it at that for the moment. Because as we observe that over time, we begin to see, uh, and by the way, a very good bridge into all of this is when you get calm, after you get calm, instead of looking at feelings, you can look at the breath itself and begin to see how the breath is impermanent. Now, perhaps you've already seen this, even though it hasn't been, in quotes, an official suggestion that sometimes the breath is deep, sometimes the breath is shallow, sometimes it's very, very smooth, sometimes it's enjoyable to breathe, sometimes it's not much fun. Sometimes the breath is very smooth and silken, sometimes it's like burlap. Sometimes it's vivid, sometimes it's not in focus at all. And so you can begin to see impermanence on the breath. You can see it in feelings, you can see it in any mind state. 
And as you begin to see that independent of content, no matter what it is, it is subject to this law. You're now starting to be more process-oriented. You're beginning to see that no matter what it is, it arises and passes away. And we do lots of that in this practice. Uh, And it leads somewhere. One of the things that comes out of it is the ease in letting go. Quite naturally, what grows out of it is the, an increased capacity to let go. As we begin to see that everything comes for a certain period of time and then it goes and it's a law. And we see that we have no control over this law. And finally, the message sinks in. It goes deeper and deeper into the heart because we already know this is true intellectually. But we haven't gotten it at a very, very deep level. And as we begin to get it, we're able to be with things for the length of time that they're there. And we're able to relax as they leave because they must leave. That takes us deeper and deeper. And then we begin to touch realms of, we could call it mind, we could even to call it inner work, None of the the language breaks down at this point. We start to enter a realm that is vast, untouched by suffering. It's not really a realm, but I have to use language. And whether we call it nirvana or true nature or Buddha nature or the deathless state or the unconditioned, For all I know, perhaps God, whatever you want to call it, we begin to taste that. We taste a realm as we've, through seeing into all these coming and goings, the different kinds of experience that make up our, what seems to be our mind. As more and more we're able to observe them, fully experience them, and allow them to just fall away, to let go. The letting go here is not throwing away. It's just letting it run its natural course without impeding what's happening. We begin to, if there's some uh, anguish that's due to the fact that everything arises and passes away. The first noble truth. There is anguish in the world. We begin to see that very clearly. And we see there's, and these are somewhat difficult for those of you who are new to the Buddhist teaching. Please don't let it spoil your retreat that there is no self or not-self. That one is often confusing and difficult for all of us. It's not meant as a metaphysical statement to be debated. Essentially, it's a guy, it helps us to let go as well. But let's just say it points to uh, an accurate, uh, an in-depth investigation of what, what we think of as being ourselves. What is that? that which we think of as being me. What is that anyway? And here it's not views and opinions that we need or philosophic positions, but clear seeing and looking really openly and honestly. Here what is needed is naivete, innocence, fresh look at what we think of as being me and ourself. Being naive here is not a negative term, as it, in Harvard Square it is. It means you're a jerk and anyone can take advantage of you. 
Here it means you're fresh. You're seeing, you're looking with fresh eyes. It's beginner's mind or don't know mind or whatever language you like. Free of the, the coloration of conditioning in the past, we begin to what what am I? What is this? But again, it's not chronic introspection, which we've probably done enough of already. But by seeing, for example, the different mind states come and go endlessly, can you see how that uh, leads to a revision of what we might see ourself as being? And so we're moving in the direction of freedom. Uh, to finish up, we have just a few moments. Those of you who are very new to the practice, please don't consider working with the breath a lot to calm down as kindergarten, because it isn't. It's essential. Not only that, it's not something you do and then you're finished with. It's something that we all, it's always valuable. It's always valuable. And in this practice, uh, even if you've been practicing for many, many years, typically we start off with just a simple in-breath and out-breath. In each sitting, it's like we begin again as if we just started. And sometimes a few breaths lead to real depth and calm, at which point we can then uh, begin to investigate and to look carefully at what's happening, seeing that whatever it is that's happening, it arises and passes away, and it's not a self. It lacks an enduring core. It's another way of saying that it's not permanent. So your weekend, I think, would be well spent if you uh, spend a lot of time on that. But perhaps uh, even those of you who are very, very new, let's say in a given sitting, you suddenly feel some calm. It's like a gift. Perhaps you feel that the breath is so natural that you're not uh, tampering with it that it feels as if you're being breathed. It's totally effortless and there's some stillness. At that point, uh, have some fun with the breathing. Begin to see the changes in the quality of the breath. Begin to notice that each in-breath begins and ends. Each out-breath begins and ends. So get a, a bit of taste, a bit of a taste of this, the contemplation of impermanence. And then as you do that for a while, you may find that suddenly it's out of focus. You're getting all caught up in the content of the mind. And it's not very fruitful. Then go back to the breath, the simple in and out breath. Fine-tune your attention again. It's like a good friend. You can always come back to it. Come to rest in the in-breath and in the out-breath. For those of you who have been practicing for a while, uh, again, it's the same suggestion. You may, perhaps you already have some stillness and some calm and you want to open the field up somewhat along the line suggested. Good. When you come to a place of stillness and calm, perhaps look at the breath first, get your feet wet, notice the impermanence of breathing. You'll also find that there's no breather. No one owns the breath. It's just breathing. It's quite beautiful. But then you say, oh no, I'm breathing. Well, but then you look carefully at it, it's just a thought. I am. It's a convincing thought. But when you look carefully at it, it uh, falls away. It's like cardboard. And there's just breathing. And it's wonderful. The big fat ego is taking a break for about three seconds. <laughs> so that you can uh, try this. Those of you who have been practicing for some time, 
when the mind is stable and calm, just sit without any agenda whatsoever, none. Have no preoccupations as to what you're to accomplish or uh, where you're supposed to be going, but just pay attention to the breath, of course. In this method, we're always with the breath. And whatever emerges as vivid, see, now you have a somewhat more uh, panoramic openness, comprehensive attentiveness to the whole, rather than just a narrowing down into the breathing exclusively. And sometimes what will come up will be some feelings. I don't like sitting here. It's very uncomfortable. Examine them. See them arise and pass away. Or some moods or mind states, just as, as was suggested. And if you're able to do that, then allow that to develop. It's a wonderful way to spend some of your time. Inevitably, we get tired of investigating, and that turns up because the mind goes out of focus. We start getting caught up in things, thinking rather than being aware of thinking, lost in certain moods, not simply knowing that it's, we don't like uh, being so uncomfortable, but, but caught up in it, a kind of self-pity. And then we see that, and sometimes it's wise to then go back to the breathing, fine-tune your attention again. Sometimes one or two breaths is enough. And sometimes the whole sitting can be finished or the next few sittings are spent coming back to the calmness. And it's learning how to work artfully. And so if you can see that, the the breath is a gateway into the, the total teachings of the Buddha from calmness to liberation. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.